This is Life I Swear, where we share stories and reflections from Black women about trials in their lives that have helped them heal, connect, and process. Every week, we hold space for storytelling that both challenges and inspires us to be good to ourselves. I'm your host, Chloe Dulce Livueso. In support of Black Female Voices, every week of season three will highlight a different Black woman-owned brand or organization. These entrepreneurs and visionaries rely on community to expand, so I hope you support. This week, we're highlighting fellow podcast Up Late with Shay and Dell, a positive comedy podcast hosted by the beautiful and hilarious comedic duo Shay Hayes and Dell Harrison. Each week, they're discussing the pop topics, hosting celebrity interviews, sharing their own funny stories, and the fans give their opinion, and it is laugh-out-loud funny. Tune in and get a big jolt of lighthearted goodness. Listeners should find them and follow them by searching at Up Late TV Show on Spotify. How have you been groomed to understand love, sex, desire, or beauty? In the homes where I grew up, none of these were ever discussed. So I figured them out on my own, thrust into circumstances that required me to interpret them for myself. But for others, like Simi Moonlight, messages from family played a big part of her desirability training. And as she explains, Sometimes the lack of candor about what it means to love or what love could feel like forces you to imagine those experiences as a means to understanding them. Simi is a beautiful writer and mental health advocate who is keen on exploring our range and intensity of emotions. In this episode, we talk about the desirability training we receive as young girls what intimacy and self-discovery can look like in relationships, and how love, above all else, is a tool for survival. So thank you for joining me today, Simi. Of course. Thank you for asking me to join. Absolutely. Um, So intimacy, especially sex and love, is one of those things we probably... Um, are least transparent about um, because it's such a personal and private element of our lives. And so when I've read some of your recent writings about it, I knew I could have an honest conversation about both. So I am, I'm very glad you're here today. But when I was younger, I think I misunderstood what liberation in a sexual sense was. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've written before that that's one of the things you'd tell your younger self that your pleasure is part of your liberation. How did your younger self interpret sex when you were of coming of age, I should say? Um, so that's a great question. I think about that a lot. I think my younger self really didn't understand the complexities of sex or sexual relationships, but really craved pleasure. And because I was always told that um, sex and pleasure are were connected only to a partner that I could have, right? And in this circumstance, because I was 
always perceived as you know a black woman a black girl like people would be like okay cool so you're supposed to be with a man and th- and this man is supposed to give you this and this is how you would mm-hmm. do this but it was never um presented in a way that was actually fulfilling for me or my mm-hmm. always in the way of like okay this is how you serve others um by the means of, of sex or pleasure um it took me a while to really get out of that but I think that's really the totality of what I thought about sex when I was younger. And I would say the same. When I was younger, I, when I, why I say I misunderstood it is because I felt like I was liberated because I was in control. It was almost like I was retaliating against experiences that felt violating sexually and emotionally. And so taking back my control mm-hmm. was what that looked like for me was very early sexual activity and curiosity. Mm. And one of the things I I write in my book is promiscuous choices at least felt like choices. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't about the pleasure as much as it was about autonomy. Mm -hmm. And then later when I, you know, entered into long-term serious relationships as an adult, when I felt love in those situations, sex was more about them. And like you said, being of service, than it was about me. And so in both cases, physical intimacy was never satisfying in full. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, like now, since then, pleasure is anchored in everything, Mm -hmm. and especially in intimacy. You know, growing up, self-love is often so correlated to or starts with love of our, our physical selves, our bodies. And so I'm wondering, you've written before about what it was like growing up in in your home and um, desirability training, and I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that because when, when I read that, I, like it really stuck with me mm. because being so young, we're so susceptible to how people or media measure our body's worth on a scale of of acceptability. So, what does desirability training mean to you when you refer to it in that way? Yeah, so I was in an environment where only two genders could exist, only two, two, uh, only one type of relationship could really exist, right? Maybe two, if you, if you consider like parental, right? But in mm-hmm. it came to love and pleasure and sex, like there was only one type of relationship that you could have um, with another person. And that was always between like a man and a woman. So the desirability training that I feel like I was receiving was along the lines of just kind of reaffirming this gender that was given to me where it's like, you're a girl, you're supposed to do this and you have to, Mm -hmm. you have to look like this and you can't say this and you can't do this um, or else people won't look at you as a girl anymore. Right. And I think having that drilled into me for so long taught me that in order for me to even access pleasure, I would always have to be desirable Right. Like I would always have to be the pretty person. I would always have to speak in a certain way. I would always have to be skinny. Right. Because I think a, a lot of desirability is is um, centered on fat phobia. Right. Where it's like, yeah, you can't be fat. You always have to be skinny. You have to look like this. <laughs> like You have to be totally mm-hmm. perfect um, or else no one's going to want you. And then that means you'll never, ever experience pleasure again. And I think that was the type of training that I experienced when I was younger in subtle ways and in very like overt ways as well. But the subtle ways would sometimes look like, you know, my parents telling me that I couldn't whistle 
<laughs> because, mm, interesting. Yeah, because if I whistle, then in my in my family's culture, my my family's from Uganda. Um, in my mm. culture, whistling is a masculine trait, right? Like, mm-hmm. whistle is something that only men should do. Um, right. I loved whistling, right? Because I was also mm-hmm. chorus, so that was kind of my way of like humming, whistling, like all of those things, making sounds was like my thing. Um, <laughs> and my family would be like, yeah, don't whistle or else the boys are going to hate you. And I used to be like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, so scared. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, and then I had to realize as I got older that it was just like, just based in some false reality of gender norms and desirability um, and how they all relate to pleasure, essentially. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I navigated sex very early and love very late. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, sex and value, sex and love and the value of both are such defining elements or aspects in our lives, positively or detrimentally, if that's a word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so how are those things in the context of, that's so interesting to me, um, you know, the, the cultural influence, what was the love training like, um, in your home and how was that nurtured in your home growing up? Yeah. So, um, interesting enough, I don't think I experienced much love training or if I did, I want to say that the love training was more so like tough love, right? Like, like learning about things that I should avoid actions that I should avoid if if Mm -hmm. I want to receive like authentic love, um, in the future. And I think, you know, with my, my family, um, particularly my parents being immigrants, um, they were, you know, I don't want to say escaping in a a reality, but in, in a transitioning from a reality that they had always known to a new reality. So that adjustment and assimilation is often difficult to maneuver. And then on top of that, having kids on top of that relationship issues that you might want to like work through, like on top of having to work, like there's like a lot of factors that kind of prevented them from being able to really fully give love in its totality, in my opinion. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. I've like forgiven my parents for I I understand it better, especially like with my understanding of the world um, and how it really like affects black people diasporically. I think the ways that I alternatively found love training was through books, right? Through Mm -hmm. movies, through music, um, through friendships. And I think I started to really understand that love doesn't only have to come from other people, right? You can experience love within yourself um, if you engage with something that you enjoy by really focusing and and honing in on that time of I don't want to say isolation but like solitude right in my childhood Mm -hmm. I was able to learn about love in different ways I was able to to romanticize and and think about romance Mm -hmm. I was able to see it portrayed in in different ways and the funny thing is I mean even without the representation, right? Because I, I think back in the day when I was younger, I wasn't really allowed to watch uh, many movies, <laughs> but I always snuck them in anyway. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like, super romantic movies like The Notebook or, like, whatever whatever people think mm-hmm. like, dream romance movie. Um, Black people really weren't represented in those movies, right? So despite the lack of representation, I was still able to kind of envision myself in those scenarios. 
mm-hmm. um, with another black person at, at, you know, alongside. And I think that that was like a superpower of mine, right? Like being like, hey, like, that's fine. You don't want to write me in here. I'm going to write myself in. Um, and I think that that really helped me kind of develop my own like love training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember my mom not letting me watch the scene in Ghost where they are around, they're making pottery. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, with Patrick Swayze. And I, she, like, made me leave the room every time that, that scene is, came on. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't even sex. I that was like, was yeah, that's not even that bad. That's, like, sensual. Going back to your 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 parents and being immigrants, and my father's from an uh, immigrant from Congo, you know, there's a there's a fragileness that comes with with assimilation mm. in a world where that is different than your own mm-hmm. entering into social context and rules that you're learning and trying to abide by the social rules so mm-hmm. to speak because the rest of your life is so fragile um, or you interpret it as being so fragile and for me personally I didn't grow up with examples of love my parents weren't together growing up and so there was never talks about sex or I never saw affection around right. me. Um, and so in the ecosystem of love and sexuality and all those things, I had to navigate it on my own and really my peers. But really, it was my own experiences of trial and error were probably the biggest teachers of, yeah, just what love and healthy love um, should look like. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say I learned love later, because it, it really took a lot of falling down, learning, Mm. recalibrating. (laughs) Okay, this works, this doesn't. I can't really point to any one example of love as a kid that molded principles to live by. And so one of the things that you wrote in one of your recent posts was that love was your key to surviving. And I think for me, I related to that as well. And I, I relate to that now because... I I stopped living with my mom in sixth grade and I I moved around a lot and lived in different with different families. And so not having like that anchor of family or that anchor of like, this is how you navigate the world. This is what you do. And I really attach myself to relationships, sisterhoods and romantic relationships. And so that was my way of staying afloat. Um, but it was also my way of like defining for myself what love means and then anchoring myself to that. Can you elaborate on what does it mean for you when you say that love is your key to surviving? Yeah. When I was writing that piece, I was I was really thinking about how Black people as a community have had to find alternative ways to love each other despite hardship right and I think because of that understanding that I've had I've always looked at love as a key to survival Mm -hmm. can't imagine I, I I quite literally cannot imagine existing in the time of slavery and not not looking at love as the thing that is like making you want to continue on Mm-hmm. Right. Like I can't I can't imagine like not having a community at that time. Mm-hmm. That's really all you had. Um, And I think even today. Right. Like even though we may not be in f- 
physical chains, at least some of us are not. Absolutely. Um, there are still parts of this world, all of this world that is anti-Black towards Black people, right? That we are all having to navigate every single day um, and survive every single day. And I just don't know if I would be, if I would be as willing to continue on in this world, knowing the violences that I know um, without the love that I experience, um, without the love that I'm able to give to other people. And I think that was where I was coming from when I wrote that. I mean, even when I was younger, right, in my time of like solitude, when I when I was like always grounded <laughs> for like doing something, I was able to kind of develop my own understanding of love. And that was the thing that made me want to continue on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. When I met exactly. friend, um, in high school, like, you know, it was the love that we had with each other that made me want to continue on. I don't know if I would be the same person without those moments. I don't know if I would be alive without those moments. And I think a lot of people in this world have a love that they can name that is directly equated to their survival. That's the truth for me in that, you know, when um, when everything else feels ambigu- um, ambiguous, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like my trouble word, um, <laughs> parts of our lives feel ambiguous. It is such an anchoring to be able to to know where we can rest ourselves, mm-hmm. where we, with whom we can find a home and with whom we can rest our souls, mm-hmm. essentially. And I think that, you know, historically goes back to what you're saying, but also in our personal lives, that's, you know, for so many of us, how we, how we balance mental mm-hmm. health in these crazy times is anchoring on to, to love and, and through love, we can we can maintain our sanity and we can be reminded of who we are and how much we have to Mm -hmm. give. And to your point, make you want to continue on. I love that. And so now fast forward in your current season of life, having seen love for, you know, from its various angles, how do you know when you're in love? How do you recognize love? Um, (laughs) I, that's like such a great question because I actually, ended up asking that question um, when I posted my piece uh, to my audience. But I Mm. think for me, um, I know when I'm in love when my survival um, is not the only thing that matters to me. I I think I know for sure when the other person's survival is as important as mine, right? And I think... A lot of people can can sit here and say like, yeah, I want I want all black people to survive. And yes, I do. Right. But if it came down to it, if I had to make a hard choice between me and someone else. Right. If someone was trying to kill me and I had mm-hmm. to make the choice of saving myself, I would save mm-hmm. myself. Right. I don't know mm-hmm. if I would look at my partner and think. I just want to save myself, right? I would be like, yo, how can I save this person? How can I enrich their life more, right? How how do I bring them the joy that they bring me continuously? I also know that I'm in love when their joy is not only equated to their relationship with me, right? And like, I still want to wholeheartedly support it and facilitate it if I can. And I think that that was a hard lesson I had to learn where it's like, yeah, sometimes people actually are happier without you. And if you love them, then that has to be okay with you, right? That has to be something Mm -hmm. that you want to support and facilitate. 
and it sucks and, and it's not to say that it doesn't hurt but I think that's something that really solidifies the meaning of love for me when you truly just want to see this person thrive with or without you and when you think of love for self mm. for yourself as you know kind of the most I think of it as one of the most romantic relationships we have in our lives is with ourselves when you think of love for self what does that mean for you you know I I used to kind of fall into the trap of thinking like I I think a lot of times people will use the you can't love anyone if you don't love yourself I think sometimes that works um, but sometimes it's not always true right because I think it it facilitates this idea that people are undeserving of love if they don't love themselves Mm -hmm. um and -hmm. I don't think that that's true I think people experience depression anxiety all these intrusive thoughts that can affect how they view themselves or perceive themselves but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve love right so for me how I had to kind of shapeshift my idea of love after fully understanding that that rhetoric didn't necessarily mean that it's always true I just started to look at my self-love as my ability to try, right? Like, and I think once I stopped, mm. deta- like, once I detached my self-love from these, like, destinations or these complete goals or, like, you know, these, like, these, like, tangible things, I was able to really just, like, understand it as, like, did you try today? Sometimes trying looks like just waking up. Right. And I think that mm-hmm. that is worth applause. Um, and if I did that much, I think that my relationship to self is either incredible or it's growing. Right. And I think it changes from the day to day. And I think that that's OK. But I think if I'm willing to try, then I'm willing to continuously learn how to love myself more. And I think that that's important. You know, of course, I'm always going to promote the the self-care, you know, tips and and, you know, take mm-hmm. care of your body, do the things that make you feel mm-hmm. whole and affirmed in your body. But also, like, just know that if all you can do is try, then that's okay, too. Right. And that's also worth applause. The trying just looks very minuscule in comparison to other tasks. Like, that's okay, too. Right. And I, mm-hmm. I think once people stop trying to attach their self-love to certain uh, goals, personas, tangible items, certain storylines, it'll start to feel a lot more authentic. Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And to add to that, the trying for me also is in Mm. discovering ourselves. And to me, that's, that's my love for myself is when I'm when I dig deeper into my curiosity of myself or about myself or what are there, what are aspects of myself I have yet Mm -hmm. to discover. And so, you know, whether that requires bravery to put myself into new spaces or to tap into a voice I didn't know I had, um, but loving myself in reaction to how I, you know, am triggered or how I come alive in, in new spaces, but it's always like, being fascinated mm-hmm. with myself <laughs> or, you know, like knowing that there's like, there's a, a very deep well and that lives within me. And I haven't gone, um, you know, I haven't pulled from the deepest of waters mm-hmm. that live in me. So that's my discovery. I think is how I define love of self. 
but what are you discovering within you these days? Oh, um, thank you for the addition of the self-discovery because I think that that is so important. And I mm-hmm. do think that every day that you're waking up, you you have the opportunity to discover a new version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, what I'm discovering right now, hmm, there's so many things. I, I don't even know what, I think I'm discovering that my ways of loving are changing. They are shifting according to where I'm at in my life right now. I also think that my ideas about my relation to the world are changing. I feel like my understanding of my gender is expanding. Like, I feel like there's so many things that I I still want to discover about myself that I still want to experience, despite being Mm -hmm. in a place where I feel very comfortable and excited about, right? Like, I think even in this moment where I'm, like, kind of shifting um, in my career, where I'm shifting in my personal relationships I still am like excited for the future in terms of like what I can do and what I can discover about myself I think I'm discovering that that excitement is something that I haven't felt in a long time because Mm -hmm. I think I've been so focused on surviving like surviving the world Mm -hmm. surviving anti-blackness that I have forgotten that there are still so many things about me to learn outside of just how I can survive you know so yeah I think all of those things are yeah. things every day. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It's a loaded. No, question it's okay. <laughs> and so, to end this conversation, and it's been beautiful. And I would love you to kind of fill in the blank. Intimacy is what to you. Ooh. Um. I would say that intimacy is, it's understanding, it's, it's learning, it is excitement, it is, it is like electrifying, right? And it's also Mm. deeply personal. And sometimes it's also just not personal at all, right? Sometimes it's fleeting and sometimes it, it actually has to have no meaning and it can still be exciting. I also think that something that I have learned is that intimacy doesn't always have to have an ending, meaning that it doesn't always have to Mm -hmm. lead somewhere, right? Sometimes it can start and end in the same place, um, or sometimes it can start and never end um, because maybe you just never, you never got the chance to finish it and that's okay too. And I think most important is intimacy is definitely always discovery for sure. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was that was perfect, and it's gonna definitely um, translate from my the paper I just wrote that on because <laughs> I take vicious notes when I <laughs> when I have these conversations um, and just marinate on them. Um, but thank you so much for this. This was beautiful. You. you have a beautiful mind. <laughs> thank I want to say. And um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing space. No, on thank you so I much share. for inviting me this was a wonderful conversation you have made me really really think deeply about things so I appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) always
Thank you for listening to Life I Swear. You can follow Life I Swear on Instagram. And if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast fix. And learn more at lifeiswear.com. I hope you join me next week for another episode. In the meantime, be well, friend. Thank you.